This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That joined on Football CFB by Kit Simmons, the former Portsmouth, Manchester City, Fulham and Crystal Palace player, also coached at Palace, Colchester, managed Fulham and of course, who could forget, worked with Wales with Chris Coleman. First of all, Kit, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, I must say. The, the, the first question I've, I've always wanted to ask you, to be honest, is what's the difference between being a coach and then being the manager in your own right? Um, the pressure, pressure is probably the biggest difference to be perfectly honest. And, um, I think regardless of like your, your playing career or financial situation, just being the actual manager is, is such a, a pressure cooker. Um, but it's good. Like I say, it's not for everyone. You know, some people are, I think maybe destined to be a very good coach or assistant or others are destined uh, for management maybe but um, I've sort of enjoyed both aspects of it you know I've, I've been assistant to Chris in a few different jobs and I've managed in my own right um, sort of caretaker for quite a while at Palace and then at Fulham as well so um, yeah I, I'm sort of equally comfortable and equally happy doing doing both roles they are very different. When you became obviously caretaker at Fulham and then you got the managerial job outright, just how proud were you? Because you mentioned the fact you'd been caretaker at Palace, you'd been a coach, but when you got that job at Fulham, that was you in your own right as Kit Simmons, the manager. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great moment for me. And obviously I had um, a lot of history with, with Fulham as well, which um, probably worked in my favour initially to, to get the job, but then in a lot of ways, sort of worked against me further on. But um, that was like a one-off situation, if you like. You know, Fulham was a club I played for for three and a half years. We'd had two promotions. Um, I'd then gone back in and done, you know, scouting for the club during the, the Europa League um, run with Roy Hodgson. Uh, I was doing all the European scout, a lot of European scouting there. Uh, then went in as well doing coaching in the under... 11s, 12s, 13s, all the way through the academy, became assistant coach for the under-18s with Gary Brazil, got the under-18s job full-time, um, then did the, the under-21s or the reserves, and then the first team. So it was quite a unique experience. And I don't think too many people have, like say, had the playing career at a club and then done all those different jobs um, and then become manager. So it was, yeah, it was something I was immensely proud of. Um, and a job that I enjoyed. There were a lot of a lot of issues and problems along the way. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, something I enjoyed immensely, and I'm very proud of, of what I achieved there. In terms of Craven Cottage, what's it like? Obviously, we'll talk about your playing career, but when you're the manager there, it's it's an interesting football ground. It's very historic. Um, obviously, the atmosphere is something that some people say can be quite calm at times, but it's a, it's a club film that always intrigues me because you've got the, the, the lily-white shirts, as I say, the historic ground, and 
they're a club that in my lifetime was always a Premier League club. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I obviously joined the club as a player when they were like third tier of, of English football when, with Kevin Keegan as the manager. And um, yeah, Kevin sold me this dream was one of the reasons I signed. He said within five years, Fulham will be a Premier League club. Um, and sure enough, within three years, you had two promotions in three years um, when I was there. So we ended up in the Premier League. And it was there for, I think, like 13 years, I think, all told, it was a, it was a Premier League club. So uh, it's, it is quite a unique club, as you say. It's a very old stadium with so much character. It's, I mean, I think universally people say it's probably the nicest walk from the station to get to a football ground. You know, you go through Bishop's Park alongside the river. And it's lovely. It's brilliant. But, um, and and Fulham, Fulham sort of fans had this reputation of being, you know, back in, in my time, certainly when I was playing, as like Filofax fans that all turn up late from work. And now, you know, that was true to an extent. But there's also uh, an awful lot of passion there and an awful lot of, um, a lot of knowledge. I think Fulham generally had very sort of knowledgeable fans. And I think I, I sort of got mixed up a little bit with the, the fans that were the supporters or the hardcore group of supporters when I was playing to when I came back as manager. You know, times had changed and the club had had, what, 13 years, whatever, in the Premier League. And it was a, a different sort of fan base and probably wanted different things. I was still maybe caught up in, in, in my playing days a little bit and thought I knew what the fans maybe wanted and didn't quite gauge that quite right. You mentioned the fact that the expectation from fans, one of the things that intrigued me from your time at Fulham was the fact that you had so many talented young players that you were willing to put onto the pitch, Moussa Dembele, Patrick Roberts, to name just two. And you also had the mix of guys like that with obviously Scott Parker, a real veteran of the game and a player who's so highly rated, as we all know. Um, from his fellow pros. Just just what was it like having the mix of talented youngsters like the two have mentioned, along with someone like Scott? Um, well, for me, obviously, I'd, I'd worked in the under-18s, then the under twenty one, so I knew all these young boys very, very well. Uh, knew what they were capable of. Uh, and I was comfortable putting them in. Um, when you say about the experience there, there wasn't actually that much experience alongside it so we had Scott obviously you speak about who um, uh, was injured quite a lot really during my time as, as manager really good influence strong influence with the young players um, but then like initially so I mean the, the first the, the, the season I took over the first season in the championship from the gap the opening day of the season um, I think there were like 10 club debuts um, and nine championship debuts. So there wasn't that much experience about. Now, people like Brian Ruiz and Hugo, Hugo Rodiega had been sidelined by, by Felix McGap. I So I brought those boys back in, so that brought in a little bit more experience. But there wasn't an awful lot of experience around, to be honest. I'd say Scott was, was a great example, and um, you know, very good for the younger players. But he, he wasn't always there, wasn't always available, unfortunately, on the playing side, because we certainly could have done with him. You mentioned Felix Magat there. An interesting character, to say the least. What was he like to work with? Because it's been well documented, some of his methods were interesting. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I never actually sort of worked directly with him. So I was taking the under 21s or the, or the reserves um, when Felix was the first team manager. So, and they were very, the way he worked with his staff, it was very sort of insular. So there was no, you know, it wasn't open at all. And, and the club changed completely. And it's all on one site for them, the training ground at Motspur Park. So all the, all the office staff are there as well. And it used to be very open. Everyone would mix in. So the players would be having lunch with the, the, the merchandising people or the commercial department. And that was, that was part of Fulham's uh, sort of charm, if you like, and just how the club was. But that, that all changed and Felix wanted to do it a different way. You know, bearing in mind, this was a man who'd, who'd won three Bundesligas. So vastly experienced and just had his own way of doing things. And it was, it was very, very different. And it wasn't necessarily Fulham, if you know what I mean. So, um, uh, yeah, so I didn't work that very closely at all with him, um, but I would sort of view what was going on from a distance. And, that, yeah, there was some certainly some interesting things going on. You mentioned the fact some interesting things. I remember the story that everyone always talks about is Breda Hangeland being told that in terms of having an injury, there was no conventional methods. It was it was all quite it was rubbing cheese or something on him. I mean... You you had been at the club, so see because these senior guys had known you, did they ever come to you and say, "What is going on here?" Yeah, there was, there was a bit of that going on. So I mean, that's that's a true story about Breda. It wasn't just any old cheese. It wasn't you know a Dairy League triangle or anything. It was quark. So just to clarify that, um, if that makes any difference, it was quark wrapped up in brown paper, um, which which isn't like an old wives' tale. I think in in sort of German folklore or whatever. So, listen, Breda actually started that game, by the way. That's all I'm saying. He, he came off with concussion. Not sure the, the cheese has got anything to do with that, but he did actually start, start the game. He had um, a badly swollen knee that, that needed aspirating um, with, with fluid to so take the fluid off. Um, but like I say, he spent the night wrapped up in brown paper with cheese on his knee and uh, did actually start the game, strangely enough. So, interesting. Absolutely. Um, as well as coaching at club level, you also coached with Wales, as we talked about, with Chris Coleman. Just describe your relationship with Chris Coleman and what he's like as a manager, because that job at Wales is unbelievable. Semi-finals of the Euros, I mean, not many people get the chance to do that. No, it was, it was fantastic. Like the, the, my time with Wales was, was brilliant. I mean, me and Chris went back a long way. We played, first met each other under-17s with Wales. Um, and then obviously played under 21s together and then many years in the full squads and also we played together at Fulham where we really sort of cemented our friendship and became like best mates um, so yeah so I, I, I was doing I think the, I think I was doing the under 18s at Fulham when I got a call from Chris to say he'd been offered a job um, would I go in with him as assistant which obviously I, I jumped at now it was you got to think back it was a very difficult time taking over because we, we were only Chris was only getting a job because of the the, death, the loss of Gary Speed who was who was also big friends of us played in that under 17s game I'm talking about the 21s and the full squad with us so he was a big friend of, of, of mine and Chris's and so to take over from your mate in such circumstances made it very very difficult and we had some really hard times away it was people everyone talks about the semi-final and Listen, that, that run was incredible. It was absolutely brilliant and something I'm very, very proud of. But 
what what makes me even more proud about it was because we had to go through some really really tough times to get us there um and you know you know i mean the, the defining moment or the turning point for me we we got smashed 6-1 away to serbia in a qualification game world cup qualifier and that was a real low point and it was sort of after that that chris decided he's got to do things his own way um because up to then because speeds was our mate we didn't want to show any sort of disrespect by changing too much from what Gary was doing. Um, so Chris kept it very similar. And he was doing a lot of good work as well. He's doing a really good job, Gary, there. But it was his way of doing it. And I think that's, that was a really important lesson for me and Chris, is, is that, you know, even if it's someone you really respect and you've still got to do things in your own way. And after that Serbia game, there was a big shift. Chris could have got sacked. He could have resigned. But he sort of dug in there and, and then we started on this fantastic run that got us through to the European Championships and ultimately the semi-final. In terms of Wales, coaching with the national team, what really intrigues me about a nation like Wales, obviously I'm from Scotland, so we've got this now I suppose with Andy Robertson in the sense that you've got a player like Gareth Bale, you've got Aaron Ramsey, you've got these two players that are really, if not world-class, they're bordering on world-class. And then you've got a mix of players who are maybe from the Championship, maybe one or two in League One. Same with Scotland, as I've said, with Andy Robertson and, and some others. What's that like to manage the group? And just how important is it that Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey set high standards? Because I know they do. I spoke to Simon Church recently and he said, when those two guys turned up with the national team, there was no ego about them. They get down to work and they set standards. No, that's that's very true, and it was it was um, it was massively important. And there was also, I think, there was there was a shift in Gareth in particular that that I noticed. And he was always, literally, always turned up world class player, as you say, uh, fantastic talent, did brilliant for Wales always. Um, but there was a, a little shift, and he almost um, sort of became selfless. And he was the one winning headers in our own penalty box and clearing balls and tracking back and I think when you get someone like that a player of that ability and um, regarded so highly when he's absolutely working his socks off for his teammates who like you say come from all different clubs different leagues um, that that sort of sets the tone um, but again a, bit, a huge part of that was the environment that Chris created with Wales um, it, it really was. I mean, our, our sort of strap line was together stronger and everyone's tried to copy it since then. But uh, it was the Welsh FA who came up with it initially. And, but that, that was the way we worked. That literally, all the players were, were so tight as a group. But then the staff were brilliant and really close with the players as well and with each other. It, was, it really was one big family of everyone pulling together. But that comes from the top. You know, Chris sort of, created that and it's not easy to everyone talks about the environment um and sort of bans that word around as if it's easy to do and it's not it takes a lot of thought and it, it takes the person at the top showing i think great honesty and integrity uh, and it's, it's not easy to create but when you do do it and it's genuine it can lead to some brilliant things as, as i say you saw with the with the semi-finals See, when you're a coach and you've got someone like Gareth Bale, see every single game you play, do you think you've got a chance purely because of his immense talent to, to make something out of nothing? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
he could be having a poor game. And listen, he wasn't he wasn't brilliant for the full ninety minutes in every game. You know, that's impossible for for any player throughout the world. But he was always, as you say, even if he's having his worst ever game, he's always uh, has the ability. And also, there's there's the likelihood, probably sometimes even more so. You know, he might not be having a good game, and he's going to do something incredible because he's, he he has that within him to be able to do that. And so, yeah, we certainly always felt we were in with a great chance. I mean, even even going back to the qualifying for the Euros, for the opening game of the, the campaign, we played Andorra away. Um, we went one, we were on, a, on a, a very newly laid artificial pitch, which was horrific. And um, we're 1-0 down to a dodgy penalty. And Gareth equalises with a header. Ten minutes to go, we're drawing one all with Andorra. Um, the opening game of the group. If we if we draw that game, realistically, that's probably our qualification chances over because dropping two points to Andorra in the opening game would not be a good start. And then we get a free kick. Gareth takes it and it hits the wall, um, but the referee calls it back to be retaken because of encroachment encroachment by them. And then he puts it in the top corner. We win two one, and then go on a, a massive, like fantastic, unbeaten run. Um, and obviously then qualify for the finals. And, but it's all these defining moments. And like I say, it was a horrible game. And on a horrible pitch, the surface was terrible. But Gareth pops up with, you know, really good-headed goal, the equaliser, and then a, a fantastic free kick. So when you've got a Gareth Bale in your team, like I say, even if he's not playing well, there's always a, a strong possibility he's going to pull a rabbit out of the hat for you and do something, something magic. Does your coaching techniques, the coaching techniques of Chris as well, change at international level in the sense that if you're working with the Fulham Academy or the Fulham First Team, you've got five days or four days where you can really work with those players and build things up on a daily basis, whereas you know what it's like being there in the thick of it. When you've got the national team, it's a double header. You've got two games in between a couple of days to prepare. Yeah, so it is different. So generally, the lead-up to the first game, um, you can get you can get a bit more work done on the training pitch, but it's a lot of you know we've got to give the players a lot of information on exactly how we want them to play, um, and exactly what we feel the opposition's threats are going to be. So there's lots of meetings, video meetings. Then we do as much work as we can on the grass. But generally, like I say, when they're double headers, you know you get a few days, four or five day build up for the first game. But then it's a quick turnaround for the second game and you've got recovery days from the, after the first game. There's only so much you can do. So we'd obviously, again, a, a big thing that worked in our favour was we had a system that people knew inside out and, and were very comfortable with, a formation, a system of playing. Um, so people knew roles, responsibilities. Sometimes the odd person would change um, but then the, the boys stepping in all knew what, what they were doing and could slot straight in nicely. So we were, we were quite lucky in that respect that we had a, a, a way of playing, a way of working and, and all the, the squad, not just the starting eleven, but the whole squad were comfortable with that and everyone bought in. And it really was, like I say, it wasn't just about the eleven that were playing, it was everyone together and everyone was, was equally as important and equally as valued. And I think they all felt that, you know, the staff felt valued, the players, be them squad players or, or Gareth and, and Aaron, as you spoke about, everyone felt equally valued and important and part of it. 
And again, that's down from, comes from Chris and, and his management style and the environment that was created. Looking back on the time at Wales, just how proud are you of everything that you achieved together? Yeah, ma massively, massively proud. Um, you know, we, we both played for our country and then to get the option, the, the opportunity to, to manage and coach, it, it's huge. It means so much. And then to be sort of successful and part of that success is, is brilliant, you know. I mean, it's sort of bittersweet for me because I'd, I was assistant um, all the way through qualification, but my last game as assistant was when we beat um, Belgium in Cardiff, which pretty much for me, in my mind, was, was the big game. And that's the one that we didn't mathematically qualify that night, but that was the big one when we, we really felt that we'd done it. You know, beating Belgium in Cardiff was huge. Um, but then I was, I was Fulham full-time manager at that time and I had to give up the Wales job um, to be full-time manager of Fulham. So that was really difficult because I, you know, I knew like we were going to qualify. Um, but I also knew then I wouldn't be part of it so, or directly part of it. So that was difficult, but it was the right decision and one I had to do. I didn't really have an option. Um, and then obviously as things transpired, I ended up, before we got to the finals, I ended up getting sacked as Fulham manager. Um, Paul Trollope, who, who was our mate we played with at Fulham and with Wales, uh, had come in and taken, taken the assistant manager role. Um, and so come the, come the finals, I, was, I went obviously over to France, but I was doing like the, the scouting for the team uh, rather than that direct link with the, with the players. So it was, it was sort of bittersweet for me, but again, I was very proud of the work that I'd done and just proud of the work the staff had done, the players had achieved. And I went, I went to all of the games apart from, apart from the first one um, when I was actually doing the England-Russia game on that day. So I couldn't, in, in Marseille, so I couldn't, couldn't be at our game. But all the other Wales games I managed to get along to. Uh, and it was just an incredible ride and roller coaster of a ride. After Wales, you teamed up with Chris again at Sunderland. And this is just a question, if I had Chris here as well, I would, I would love to ask him. Results did improve for a spell. Ultimately, do you think the whole TV documentary and all that that was going on behind the scenes in the end was ultimately just a major distraction? Because ordinarily, when you're fighting for your lives, you would you would be able to do that without cameras following every single move of players, physios, managers, staff. Um, no, to be perfectly honest, it they were. Uh, the, the, the production company who made it uh, were actually very, very good. And we ended up getting a good relationship with them. If we could have chosen, we wouldn't have done it. You don't ideally want the cameras there type thing. But they, were, they also did it very, very well. The, the actual production company, um, Fullwell 73, who, who made the show, were very, very good. Um, so there were many, many factors why, why Sunderland had struggled for so many years and many factors why we actually got relegated that year. I wouldn't put it down to necessarily having a film crew um, about too much, if I'm perfectly honest. They, they weren't that much of a distraction. Chris didn't let them in the changing room um, during. They wanted to come in and film half-time talks or pre-game talks or after matches and he, he wouldn't allow that. Um, and that's, that's the biggest thing for me. So, 
it wasn't that much of a distraction, really. So I don't, like I say, there are a lot of reasons, a lot of factors why the club got relegated, but that's not high up on the list. Chris has also said, right club, wrong time. Would you agree with that sentiment as well? Yeah, very much so. It was, I mean, still, it, it, was, it was tough. It was, we had a really tough time, as you know, it was documented for everyone to see. Um, but a brilliant football club with a lot of fantastic people there. And like I said earlier, there were a lot of factors for that that happened, the things that had taken place long, long before you know we got to the club. Martin Bain, the chief exec, was at the club. A lot of things were done wrong over many, many years, and then ultimately, then we we paid the price for it that season. And the club's still paying the price for it now. You know, it takes it takes quite a lot of work to turn things around, and a bit a lot of time. Um, you know, if you do the wrong things for a long time, you then got to do the right things for a long time to see see the improvements and to get the club back to where you want it to be. But a brilliant club, fantastic fans, and we, we made a lot of friends um, at the football club who I still keep in touch with now. You know, so um, yeah, I'd say right right place, wrong time is probably sums it up nicely. Something that I must I must be genuinely honest that really shocked me at the time was. The fact that you and Chris didn't get the chance when they went down into League One to bring them back, is that something that was ultimately surprising in the end, considering that Chris had came from Wales where he got to the semi-finals of the Euros. You came having managed Fulham as well. Just, I don't know, for me it just seems strange that you weren't given that opportunity to, to have a pre-season and build your own squad. No, we were, we were shocked, like I say, going, coming towards, well, Basically, all our time there, we, we came in in November um, with the club obviously struggling at the bottom of the league then. Um, so, although we were doing, we were putting everything we had into trying to keep the club up in the, in the championship, we were also planning, looking at recruitment for the following season. You know, we were planning for the following season. We had two lists of players, one if we managed to stay up, one if the club ended up in League One. So there are two different lists of players going at a time. So we, we were planning to stay there no matter what. And we'd, we'd made um, quite a lot of plans along with, with those regards. But um, ultimately, it was, you know, there was a takeover and the new owners wanted their own people. So that was part of the takeover, the total clear out of the staff. So um, unfortunately, me and Chris went, yeah, we'd, we'd planned to stay there. We, we, we wanted to stay, but it was taken out of our hands, you know. So. This is football, you know. We, we've we've experienced these things before, and you know, you sort of you wipe your mouth and get on with it, and then look for the next one. You look for the next one, indeed. And did you ever foresee a time where you would end up in China, Habai Fortune? Um, no, <laughs> not to be perfectly honest. But I knew. I mean, Chris had worked abroad previously. He'd worked in in Greece with Larissa, and he'd worked over in Spain as well. And he enjoyed both experiences. So. I knew he was very open to working abroad, um, as was I, uh, as were his immediate staff. Um, Adam Owen, who's a fitness coach who came with us, had, had worked abroad. He'd, he'd managed in Poland and uh, worked in Switzerland. So he was used to it as well and his family. So, yeah, I'm not surprised we went abroad. I mean, I didn't necessarily think China was going to be our destination, but... Um, I've got to say, again, overall, that was a, a fantastic, it's a life experience for us, as well as a football one. And um, 
there were there were difficulties and problems we had to overcome, but overall, again, a brilliant experience. What was the standard of football like there, and just what was it like living in China? Yeah, we were we were based in uh, Beijing. Like we took over from Pellegrini halfway through the season, and one of the things he did was he moved the training base to Beijing, um, which is the next province along obviously huge city, but and. and it's about an hour and a half from Hebei. We used to travel to for our, our um, home games uh, on the coach. So it wasn't too far. Um, but by living in, living in Beijing, Beijing was a, a good place to live. And I think he felt it would attract, easier to attract the foreign players to come and, and live in, in Beijing. So, um, <clears throat> so living in Beijing was, it was a great experience for us. Um, the standard of, of play, there, there would be, uh, it was very mixed. So there would obviously we we had like Mascherano and Lavezzi playing for us, you know, world class players, top top talents. So you get bits of incredible skill during games. There's some very very good Chinese players as well. Then also there was within the one game there would be some you'd see some maybe some schoolboy errors and some shocking defending, um, all within the one game. So it was very sort of mixed. So there was. Obviously, a lot of goals um, within that football because generally the the foreign players, so there'd be like SIPG and like Oscar and Hulk and players like that, and um, some real quality players. But most of the top players were at the, the top end of the pitch, so you'd, you'd see a lot of goals. Um, but it was yeah, fairly sort of mixed standard. But again, it's one you got used to quite quickly and. Um, gave you plenty to work with on the training field, and and it was what was what again what we were most proud about there was was our local players, the Chinese boys, really bought into the way we wanted to work, and um, they were excellent. I've got to say, we uh, our, our problem was more with our foreign players. Really, uh, Masha was was brilliant, Masharano for us, but he's a holding midfield player, so he can't massively influence the game. And Levetsi was injured. Um, most of the time with us. So he's, you know, the highest paid player in Chinese football he was and uh, took up obviously a huge part of our budget. And he unfortunately wasn't very often fit for us. So he was a huge loss because a, a fit, a fit Levitsi would have made you know, a world of difference to us. Um, and ultimately whether we ended up staying there or not. In terms of your coaching career, you've been coaching at Fulham across various levels. You've managed the club, you've coached with Wales, been assistant with Wales, um, worked in China as well, as we've said, Sunderland. In terms of the future, what are you up to now and, and where do you really see yourself back in the game, maybe as a manager one day? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, like I said, I've done all those different jobs and, and I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing with me, but I've, I've enjoyed all of them. Probably... My favourite job, just for pure satisfaction, was, was doing the under-18s at, at Fulham. I felt that I could make a huge difference. Now, these are snotty-nosed boys coming straight out of school. Um, think they're sort of like, give it the big iron, think they're big men walking in. But they're, they're young boys, you know, and they're really impressionable. And it's, I think it's a lot of responsibility for coaches at that, that level to to do the right things and to try and coach and teach and educate these boys in not just on the field stuff, but off the field stuff as well and do it in the right way. And it's something I, 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 I took that responsibility really seriously, but I loved it, you know, and um, had a great response from 
the groups of players over a few few you know several years, and it, and it was brilliant. So for pure satisfaction of feeling like I I was doing good, um, the under 18s my favourite job. But then you get a different buzz at first team management level. You know I, I loved being. Like when I took over at Palace, it was like a complete shock to me. I come straight from being a player, um, and in fact, I was player, caretaker, manager. But I actually, you get such a buzz from that, and it's a different sort of rush and buzz from what you get under 18 football. So for pure enjoyment and feeling I was doing good, the 18s, but then for the the buzz, um, first team management for me. But then I, I you know, I like like being assistant with Chris. We've got a really strong working relationship work very well together um so I'd go back in and do that again I'm also I mean Chris knows I'm, I'm sort of waiting for him to get a job I'm also looking myself as well whichever whichever one happens first you know I've, I've, I've got to go and do because I can't sit around and wait financially I can't afford to do it and also just for my own peace of mind it's been nearly a year now or coming up for a year that we've left China um and so I need yeah, I need to get back working so it's yeah, just open to offers and opportunities. I would definitely go abroad again, like I say, with Chris or or on my own. So, yeah, we'll see what um, what happens. Well, I hope to see you back in the game soon in a coaching capacity, but I want to rewind to your playing career now. Came through at Portsmouth, World Cup winner in Allen Ball, in and around the club as a manager. I mean, just what was that like? Well, it was incredible, but again, with Borley, first of all, he was my youth team manager, so I signed for Portsmouth as, as an 11-year-old, and um, he was my coach, so I was, I was brought up in Basingstoke, he used to go to school in Basingstoke, and they had a, like a satellite centre, so Borley would come on a Wednesday night, like I say, he was youth team manager at the time, and would, would be my coach from, from 11 years of age, which was incredible to get, like I say, a World Cup winner, and he was someone who just had the most incredible enthusiasm for football. And again, that was at whatever level, you know, he's a World Cup winner and he's coaching 11-year-old kids, but he loved it and you could see his genuine love for the game. And so I was very lucky in that respect. That was brilliant. So, and then he became first team manager. Um, and ultimately, when I signed for Portsmouth, then I did YTS from leaving school. So I was that snotty, you know, 16-year-old going into full-time football. Um, and Bordy was the first team manager. I had Peter Osgood as, as my youth team coach and Graham Padden. So, again, I was very lucky with the quality of people I had. And then Bordy gave me my, my, my actual league debut for Portsmouth was, um, was Alan Ball's last game. We lost 2-1 to Leicester and he got sacked after the game. Um, but he couldn't have blamed me because he then ended up signing me at Man City a few years later, or eight years later. In terms of coming through, as you say, with the likes of Alan Ball, Peter Osgood, describe the emotions when you're making your, your league debut because it must be a moment where you're excited but also quite nervous as well. Um, yeah, it was. It, it was very different times. Obviously, this is a long, long time ago, as I'm sure you can appreciate. And I remember my debut, it wasn't my league debut, it was my debut in, um, it was... Uh, I think it was Zenith Data Cup or what, I can't remember what the name of the cup. It might be a Simod Cup, actually. It had some, some name anyway at this time. And I made my debut, actual debut in that. And before the game was at Fratton Park, I go into the toilets because I'm very nervous. And Alan Knight, our legendary goalkeeper, was sitting on the toilet having a fag. So that's sort of like, I'm like, wow, this is first team football. So that sort of calmed me down a little bit, to be perfectly honest. And um, 
yeah, I never, I, I did get a bit nervous before games, but I think when you're really young, so I mean, even my first full season, we ended up getting through to the semi-final of the FA Cup. And I'm going out and playing in the semi-final of the FA Cup at Highbury in front of all these Pompey fans and against Liverpool. It was brilliant. But we weren't, I was too, too young and stupid, if I'm honest, to be really nervous. I think I got more nervous as I got a bit older and I actually realised the importance of things and games and you get almost a bit of a fear factor comes in then. But when, when I was really young, I didn't have that because I think, like I say, I was, I was too naive and too stupid to actually realise I, I should have been nervous. And he played with a, almost a, a bit of a, an abandonment and a, a freedom, which was brilliant. And that's probably the time when I enjoyed my football the most. Because like I say, later on when it becomes a, more of a responsibility and you realise that it, it brings other pressures and, and worries and concerns with it. Overall, how do you reflect on your time at Portsmouth? Well over 100 games, playing regularly, Fratton Park. Just, just, just reflect on it. What was it like? Well, again, it was brilliant because, like I said, I came straight from school. I'd, I'd been with the club sort of on and off from 11 years old. Um, living in Pompey. It's, it's like, it's a big city, but it's one of those places everyone knows everyone. So I literally, you know, by coming through the ranks and being about the town, I literally knew everyone there and it was just brilliant. So for me, it was, it was fantastic. It was, you know, I'd go out and I'd, I'd be saying hello to people, bit, all, all different sorts of people, you know, literally you would know everyone about the town and sort of the way I was, I'd say hello to everyone and, it was it was a fantastic time to be at the football club and it was a brilliant place to play. The atmosphere at Fratton Park, again, you you don't realise how special that is until years later when you've left and stuff like that. But it was just incredible. And it, it yeah, everything just went really well. I mean, we we had a few like we we lost in a semi-final of the FA Cup. We'd narrowly missed out by one goal on automatic promotion, then we lost in the playoffs to Leicester a couple of years later. So it could have been very different and we could have actually had more success than we did. But it was still really good times. And you know, I loved it, of course. I had eight years there um, and absolutely adored it. I played under, obviously, a lot of different managers, but mostly Jim Smith. You know, when, when Jim came in, I became an ever-present. That was my first full season when we got to the semi-finals. I won player of the year and was an ever-present in the team. Uh, it was just, yeah, an incredible time. Just what is Jim Smith like? Because a massive, massive character. Jimmy, Jimmy was brilliant. Unfortunately, I had his, we had his funeral a few few months ago um, in Woodstock. And the turnout, um, the, the people that came sort of showed a bit of a, a testament to how, how he was thought of. People from all different generations of the game were there and it, it was it was a bit of a who's who in football you know so many he was so well thought of but was such a character I mean we we were at the funeral it was, it was me and like Andy Orford and Alan Knight Paul Walsh Mark Chamberlain um, Neil Sillett who was a physio there was, we were all just just reminiscing and telling Jim stories and it was it was brilliant to see everyone back together again obviously a very sad occasion but you know, so we had so many sort of laughs with him, and 
good times with him and he was just such a character. I mean, he threw a few teacups as well, don't get me wrong. And um, especially me and Andy Orford growing up, was coming in the team as young boys, we used to get battered by him. But we also, we knew he loved us. And he had, uh, he had a way of his, his style. He's very knowledgeable about the game. Tactically, was a lot better than a lot of people give him credit for. But was just such a character. And yeah, we, we loved him as a, as a manager and as a, as a bloke. He was, he was great to play for. And I feel very sort of privileged to have done so. You mentioned eight years at Pompey. Alan Ball comes calling Manchester City. Not the Manchester City we know now. It was back in the main road era. Just describe what it was like going to City and playing there as well. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I, I only sort of ended up leaving Portsmouth because Jim Smith had been sacked at Portsmouth. And uh, I sort of felt after eight years, I was getting like, linked with other clubs. And when Jim got sacked, I thought it probably is now was my, was my time to go. Um, and so, Bordy case, the Ports were obviously in the championship. So, actually, I played the first game of the season for Portsmouth at home at Fratton Park and then went home after the game. And Alan Ball phoned me. Obviously, the, the Premier League season started the following week. City had just played their last pre-season game and had got, they got beat 5-0 um, by Hearts. And so, Alan Ball phoned me up and said, listen, I want you to, after, after my Portsmouth game, and said, I, w- I want you to come up on Monday. And I say, I knew the situation at Portsmouth, they'd be happy enough for me to go now. They'd get good money and it was probably my time to go. So I played the first game for Portsmouth and the following week, I played the first game of the season for, for Man City against Tottenham at Main Road. And um, yeah, again, like I say, the club was, is so different to now. Obviously, play, used to play at Main Road then. Um, but the one thing, the constant with City, everything else has changed. But the supporters, it's still that fan base. It was incredible then and it's incredible now, you know. So I don't think I've ever felt happier for a set of fans to get success um, than those City fans. Because they, they went through some tough times. Certainly, the, listen, I had, I had two relegations in three years when I was playing there. So they had some tough times when I was there, let alone sort of before. And there's some tough times after as well. But no, you know, they've had you know, obviously brilliant success in recent years and I'm delighted for those supporters. Who were the big characters in and around Man City in that era? Um, what, playing-wise? Playing and managing, coaching, just, just around the whole club because, as I say, for, for, for younger fans, they see Man City as the juggernaut that they are now, but the Man City of that era, for me, is equally as interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, when I signed, so... Uh, sort of moved up from Portsmouth and uh, it was a big move for me. Didn't really know anyone at Man City apart from Paul Walsh, who I played with at Portsmouth, who I knew really well, got on really well with. Fantastic player, brilliant player, Walshy. I thought, oh, that's great. At least there's someone there I know. But within like, I think a week of me going up there, Paul Walsh came back to Portsmouth in a swap deal. So um, my, my one mate who was there sort of, came back so it was at a time where a lot of players were were starting to leave the club a lot of the bigger names um I mean saying that we, we had like Noel Quinn was still there players like that Keith Curl I played with alongside at the back um and Georgie Kincladze signed at the same time as me we were staying in a hotel together me and Georgie for the first first few months whatever we were up there 
uh, who obviously became an absolute cult hero at the club, Georgie. So it, it was just a very difficult time for the club and there wasn't a lot of stability there. A lot of the players weren't particularly happy. And after we ended up getting relegated last day of the season, um, we drew 2-2 with Liverpool at Main Road. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough to keep us up. And then after that relegation, a lot of then the, the, the more established senior players, like say you people like Quinney and players like that um, all left. Uh, Curly went. They were the sort of like the more established, bigger money earners as well. Stevie Lomas went. Gary Flitcroft left. So, yeah, it was it was big changes at the club, really, and, and difficult times. As well as Alan Ball, you had some other massive names in the game of football as managers. Steve Coppel, Phil Neal, Frank Clark. I mean, just what was it like working with those big personalities? Yeah, good. I mean, the, the problem with that, that, those were all at Man City. So, and that was, I was there for, for three years and there were about seven or eight different people in charge. Like Asa Hartford was assistant with Borley when I turned up. And I think he was caretaker three or four times. Um, and obviously then Steve Koppel came in, was manager for six weeks. He came in with Phil Neal. Then Phil Neal took over a little bit and then Asa again and, it was just so messy. Frank Clark came in. I think then Richard Money was his assistant took over for a little while after him. It was just, there's no stability at the club and all these different managers wanted to bring in some of their own players. There's suddenly just a, a huge, like 50 plus pros, um, which is too many, but there wasn't really a, a cohesive team amongst a lot of us, if you know what I mean. So, it wasn't a, a, a squad that was constructed. It was just a mismatch of players thrown together. And again, it's like I said about, you know, my time at Sunderland. If you do things wrong for a long period of time, you're going to pay the price somewhere down the line. And again, unfortunately for me, my timing doesn't seem to always be great. So uh, we went into Sunderland maybe at the wrong time and we sort of carried the can there. And maybe I joined Man City at, at the wrong time. And, sort of carried the can there a little bit as well. But again, both of them were brilliant clubs and it was an honour and privilege to, to, to be part of both of them. We've talked a lot about Fulham and the coaching side. Let's talk about them on the playing side. From City to Fulham, Kevin Keegan is your manager. Just what was that like? Because Kevin, I've met Kevin a few times and one of the nicest men in football. Yeah, I mean, for me, he was absolutely brilliant. So it sort of came about, I was going to go to another club actually. I'd. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of spoken to a club because um, City had now got relegated to League One at this time. So I was leaving Man City. There was a bit of a bit of a kerfuffle there. As well. I got offered a new contract and then it was withdrawn <clears throat> sort of at the last minute, very last minute, which was unheard of. Um, I'd agreed to sign for a champ or spoken to a championship club um, who I could have signed for and offered me good deals. In fact, and then, but then Chris Coleman phoned me up who was at Fulham at the time, and said, mate, come down here. So I've got Kevin Keegan with me. And he put me onto the phone to Kevin. I told Kevin, I'd, you know, I'd agreed for this other club. He said, listen, before you sign, just come down and talk to us. So I went down and talked to him. So Fulham was a league lower. And they were offering me less money than this other club. But it just felt right. Now, they didn't have their own training ground at the time. Fulham, they were training at, um, in the Richmond Park Bank of England training grounds. So it wasn't their own training grounds. But Kevin sold me this dream I spoke about earlier, five-year plan about, you know, Alfred was the owner. We, and he, he, he was like, adamant, we will be in the Premier League within 
five years. And like I say, I ended up doing it in three. We had two promotions in my, in my first three years at the club and we're in the Premier League. So I, it just felt right. And Kevin, for me, was, was fantastic. His, his man management um, was excellent. Now, you say one of the nicest guys and, and he, for me, absolutely fantastic. But he had a ruthless side, Kevin, as well. And uh, you didn't want to get on the wrong side of him uh, ever. So, and we were all, you know, we had some big personalities and some very senior pros like himself and Chris Coleman, Simon Morgan, players like that. Philip Albert came in on loan. And went, so we had some, there's some big characters, big people around. But yeah, everyone knew Kevin was the boss and we, um, we all respected that. Another manager you had throughout the course of your time at Fulham was um, Jean Tagana, obviously, the Frenchman. Very classy guy in terms of the sort of swagger about him. What was he like to work with? Because, as I say, compared to the managers you'd had before, I imagine he was quite different. Yeah, very different. So this, <clears throat> again, going back, back to this was now, was it, was it 98 or 99, something? And um, he brought in a different way of training, a different way of us living our lives, basically, off the pitch as well. Everything was linked to diet and our body fats. And we'd never really experienced that before, certainly not to this level. Um, and he, he took us all. So a lot of us were, were sort of like older players, if you like, like me, Chris Coleman, Simon Morgan, players like that. But he prolonged all our careers, I think, and took us to another level, um, certainly fitness-wise. And just his style of play, you know, it was everything was sort of play all the time. So. For me, I was a bit of a head it and kick it centre half, to be honest. Suddenly, we're now getting on the ball and really playing out from the back. I remember we had a pre-season game. We played Brentford uh, at Griffin Park. And um, first half, we're playing out from the back and we're murdering them. So second half, they just push four on. So when Mike Taylor, our keeper, had the ball, they push four on to mark our back four. So we couldn't play out. So we were like, oh, we just squeeze, you know, as you see teams, now we just squeezed up. And he was going mad to Ghana. And he's, what his point was, which he got across to us afterwards or, or tried to get on during that second half, very much as a pre-season friendly, if that, we, we were the first option, if you like, the back four to get the ball from the keeper. If they push on, then the keeper needs to pick the next option. So a midfielder needs to maybe pull wide into a bit of space, find a pocket, and he'll clip the ball to him. If they push on there, then he, Mike Taylor's got to kick longer into a centre-forward to get hold of it and then bring other people into play. So Tigana was always, there's always an option. If it's not the first one, find the second one. If it's not the second one, find the third one. But you must play out. So like I say, it was, it was me and Chris and Andy Melville at the back, Simon Morgan. We had like Rufus Brevet, who, used to, who was more comfortable putting people into the stands. And suddenly Rufus is a ball-playing full-back. And, we all adapted. We had to adapt and we all did. Um, and that, I mean, that was some of the best football um, I've ever been part of or seen. I mean, we had some good players as well. Then John Collins came in with Lee Clark. And the best performance over the course of a whole season was Louis Saha. Like, he just ripped the championship up. He was phenomenal um, throughout the whole season. I mean, he, you know, people had talked about his, his injuries and stuff like that. I think he played pretty much every game that, that promotion season with us. And he, he was just absolutely incredible. 
you mentioned Louis Saha. You mentioned the way he was in that championship season. I assume for you, you weren't surprised to to see what he went on to achieve in the game at Manchester United. No, not at all. And I mean, a lot a lot of that. Well, there's no no surprise at all. I mean, the, the first game we 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 won won the league like at a canter almost. Um, Although, I mean, if you talk to Graham soon, he said, say, Blackburn were the best team in the league that year, but we blew them away. Uh, <laughs> um, and we got promoted, uh, obviously, as champions. The first game in the Premier League was um, Man United at Old Trafford, um, which is obviously quite a, a daunting prospect. But we, we ended up losing the game 3-2. But Louis played and he scored two goals. And I think Gary Neville played centre-half. I think with, with Yarp Stam, I think, I can't remember. And and Louis just running ragged, Gary Neville, completely running ragged. And um, so I think, you know, Sir Alex was obviously looking at that thing and thinking, this, this boy has got a bit. But he obviously he knew all about it. But then to see what he was able to do against his great Man United team, um, there was no big surprise when he ended up going there. But again, with him, unfortunately, you know, injuries did come into play a little bit throughout the rest of his career. But for somehow, he just had that that one season at Fulham where he played every game and was just almost indestructible because championships are a tough league to play in and people were trying to kick lumps out of him because they couldn't compete physically or with his pace and his power and his strength. Um, so, you know, big hairy centre-halves like me would try and kick lumps out of him from the opposition, but he was just so resilient that year. He took all the kicks shrugged them off, scored a shed load of goals and was absolutely incredible. You mentioned the incredible talent. You mentioned the impact that Tigana had on Fulham. You swapped Fulham for Palace, not only any Crystal Palace, but Simon Jordan's Crystal Palace. What was that like? <laughs> what was Simon like to work with? <clears throat> yeah, well, obviously, as, as a... I mean, that, that was, again, a bit of a deal. I, I was at Fulham and not playing all the time. We are in the Premier League. And I wasn't playing regular football. So I was so proud to have helped get Fulham to the Premier League. But I was at a stage in my career, I needed to play regular first-team football. And I wasn't getting it. And I knew I wasn't likely to because Fulham were going <coughs> sort of up, up levels, if you want, and just getting better and better players in. Um, and so I knew my game time was going to be limited. And I wanted, just wanted to play every week. So um, the deal was going through with Steve Bruce was a Palace manager. And my deal was going through under Steve Bruce. And then he sort of went and just shot off and went to become Birmingham manager. Um, and Trevor Francis took over as Palace, Palace manager. And, and the deal just carried on. So it was, it was already in place and pretty much a done deal. So I actually became Trevor's first signing. Um, but, you know, I would have been a Steve Bruce player. And that, that was nearly a done deal before he left to go to Birmingham. So... Um, yeah, so then, you know, I played under Simon and there was a lot of talk about him and he, uh, yeah, a lot of, <laughs> yeah, he was, you know, in, in the press quite a bit. Uh, but then, obviously, I really got to know him properly when I took over as as player, caretaker, manager. And, obviously, that's when my dealings with him became sort of first-hand, you know, I had to deal with him directly. And, yeah, we had some um, some interesting and frank conversations. Overall, in the, the spell at Palace, again, another club where you have quite a few managers before you then yourself um, are in charge of the club. 
just what was it like in the latter years of your career, Kit, in terms of finishing at Palace? Because as you say, under Simon Jordan, there was there was ups, there was downs, there was everything in between because of the, the media frenzy. Yeah, so it was, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, quite early on in my Palace playing career, I picked up uh, my first real serious injury, um, which, which unfortunately got, got misdiagnosed initially. So I had a couple of operations that I didn't need and then kept breaking down, got it rescanned, and then they, they found what the initial problem was, was a, a tear in my hip joint. So I then had surgery on that and then rehabbed and got back playing after that. But I was now 31, 32, um, and I certainly wasn't ever the same as a player. So I was struggling a bit playing-wise, and I knew I was finding it a bit tough. Um, but I took over as, like I say, player, caretaker, manager, which was brilliant. So what I would do, I put myself as sub most games, and then if we're winning 1-0 with about five minutes to go, I'd go on, put myself on, clap the crowd, shout at everyone, and... You know, it all worked out really well. And the times I did that, the three or four times I did it, we, we held on to the lead. I remember then, as uh, one game, Coventry at, at Sellers Park. Stuart Gray was my assistant, who was a brilliant, brilliant coach, Stuart. He's like, put yourself on. We are one new up against Coventry. Put yourself on. And I, I thought, no, we're comfy today. We're doing all right. We're doing all right. And I didn't put myself on. They equalised the last couple of minutes. Um, and we drew one all. So I always sort of think that's one of my regrets. Should have put myself on in that game, and it might have been, you know, an extra two points could have made all the difference. Because my points telly was was very very good. We, I think, I had the eight games, uh, three wins, three draws, two defeats, which was you know decent return considering we were doing so badly when I when when I took over. And we hadn't had a clean sheet all season. I think we had four clean sheets in my eight games. So things were going in the right way and picking up. Um, and going really well, yeah. So it was, but then Ian Dowie then came in as as manager, um, and uh, ended up. Like, I knew Downer anyway. We played against each other, and we'd actually bumped into each other on holiday a couple of years before. Um, and he then called me in and said, "Would I would I become player assistant manager with him for the rest of that season?" Which I did, and then we had the most incredible run. I mean, my my final game. In charge, we beat Reading away at, at the Majeski 3-0. Uh, brilliant team performance. And basically, that team then, down, Downer came in, did a really good job. But that was a team we settled on um, for the rest of the season, really. And the, the best thing I think I did was I managed to get Julian Gray back. Julian Gray was a Palace player. They had a big falling out with Simon Jordan. Um, and Simon had said to me... he. I wanted to get Julian back to so his good player. Simon said he won't play for this club ever again over my dead body and all this. So every week, Simon would phone up, what's the team? And I tell him the team and I go, and Julian Gray. He's not playing with this club ever again. I did all that. And then eventually, a couple of weeks before I, got, I, I sort of like left my role as manager, he said, I'll just do what you want. So I managed to get Julian back in. He was a really good player. Left footed, gave us the balance I felt we were missing. Um, and then, yeah, Julian played in that, in that win at Reading and then was instrumental in our fantastic run. We got snapped six, six spot on the last day of the season, thanks to West Ham beating Wigan. And then got to the playoff final and then beat West Ham in the playoff final at the Millennium. So, um, that, was, that was my, then my contract ran out, actually, after that season. 
And so we're now in the Premier League. And so Ian Dowie comes to me and said, listen, I want you to be assistant in the Premier League, but you can't be on a playing contract anymore. You've got to be just so... It was a tough... Well, it wasn't really a tough decision. I had to decide whether I wanted to go somewhere else and play, which I could have done, maybe at Championship or League One level, certainly. Um, or be assistant manager in the Premier League, which was the option I took. I knew I was struggling with my injury, still wasn't right. Um, and to have that opportunity of being assistant manager in the Premier League, I felt was one I couldn't turn down. So that was a path that, that I went down and yeah, I, think, I think I made the right decision. You definitely have made the right decision in the sense that your coaching career since then, as we've talked about earlier, has, has been incredible and, and very very interested in terms of working in different parts of the world. The last big question I've got before around the quickfire questions is your international career. 36 caps for Wales. You make your debut against the Republic of Ireland in 92 and then your last appearance in 2001 against Belarus. 36 caps for your country for any nation is very impressive. Just how, just how proud are you to, to look back at your Wales career as well? Yeah, very proud. Um... I mean, yeah, again, it was uh, all my family, as you can tell by my accent, I wasn't, um, wasn't born and bred in Wales, but all my family are from Cardiff. So literally every other person in my family as well. So I was the only one born in England. So I used to get a load of stick off all my uncles because um, of my accent and stuff until I then started playing for Wales or I became favourite nephew and you get his tickets type thing. So that soon changed. But play, playing for your country is... Such an honour. Um, one regret is we never qualified for a, a major tournament when I was playing. You know, my first sort of real campaign was um, was for the USA World Cup, and we we missed out on the last game of the season, uh, the last game of the campaign. You know, we we played Romania, things didn't go our way, and then we missed out on on qualifying. So, you know, it was a very close call again went down to the last game which is you know a lot of my disappointments uh in my career have been down to that one final moment that one final game and things didn't quite go our way um but playing playing for Wales was was brilliant we had some great times um and again I was very honoured and privileged to have been able to do that so, but then to go on and and sort of coach the national team as well it's fantastic you know so I still sort of, so I just get on with things really, don't think too much about it. It's only really when I'm doing something like this, you know, I start, I do pinch myself. Yeah, you know, I've played and been assistant manager from a country, you know, that's a, that, you know, in anyone's books, that's a great achievement, really. Absolutely. And the first of the quick fire questions, I'm going to start with a few non football ones. What's your favourite sport outside of football? Uh, golf, but I'm rubbish, but I do enjoy it. I love a, Love a social game of golf and a couple of drinks afterwards. Who's your favourite sportsman outside of football? Um, outside of football, I think probably Michael Jordan. Just watching a documentary now and just an incredible like winning mentality. So, uh, yeah, probably Michael Jordan. Where's your favourite place you've travelled in the world so far? Not with football, just as a, a holiday. I love Italy. 
Um, Rome is probably my favourite city, but that Amalfi coastline is probably my favourite place. Favourite film? Uh, so, favourite film? Life of Brian. Life of Brian. Brilliant. Favourite band? Uh, oh, difficult one. My favourite artist, I've always been a big Billy Bragg fan. Um, but bands, probably Stereophonics. Oh, great choice. Um, beer or wine? Oh, that's a tough choice, that one. Blimey. Uh, probably now wine, because we're in lockdown. But as soon as the pub's open, Guinness. Oh, <laughs> great choice. <laughs> in terms of your football career, best players you played with? Again, be very lucky, but I'd say best would probably Ryan Giggs. Best you played against? Uh, uh, my second cap for Wales. I got asked to do man-to-man and number nine, and it, we were playing Holland, and it was Marco Van Basten. So, he's incredible. What was your favourite football ground to play at in your career? Highbury. Um, always a big Arsenal fan, and like that, that semi-final for Portsmouth, the first, first one was at Highbury, and that was my favourite ground. What's the ground you hated going to? Maybe it was just a bogey ground that when you went there, you just felt... It was maybe it was the dressing rooms or the pitch. It was just an uncomfortable place to go. Oh, um, I don't know really. Maybe the old Barnsley before that got done up was a was a tough place to go. And I got strong memories of Jim Smith throwing cups of tea around the changing room <laughs> at half time. So uh, that's always sort of stuck in the mind. So yeah, I have to say Barnsley. Who's the most underrated player you've played with? Um, possibly Chris Coleman, really. I mean, he, I think he, he got a lot of attention at one stage, but then he, he had a, a bad injury at Blackburn. Um, but then playing alongside him at Fulham and for Wales... I don't think he always got the credit as a player he maybe deserved. He was a a fantastic player, and, you know, physically very, very strong. He used to make me go up for all the headers, mine, and he'd just drop off and then come out. So he was very elegant on the ball as well. So, uh, yeah, he had the physical side of it, and he, he was also very good on the ball and could play as well. So, no, Cookie was a, was a top player. I don't think he always got the credit he deserved. Biggest character you played with? <laughs> probably the same answer. I think Chris Coleman, Cookie's got to be right up there. He was, um, uh, he, he was brilliant. Like Fulham days and with Wales, fantastic. But also, also uh, Ian Brightwell at Man City was just bonkers. Um, great lad, really good pro, but just great fun to be around and would do the most bizarre, crazy things at any given moment. And the last question I've got for you, the one that puts you on the spot. You have to pick a five-a-side team from the players you've played with. Who gets in it? Oh, blimey. Um, that's, that's, that's very, very tough. I mean, goalies tossed up between Neville Southall and Van der Sar. Uh, I've got to put Cookie in. I'll put Cookie in at the back. Louis Saha, 
up front. Um, Gary Speed, Ryan Giggs. Wow. Sensational team. Now let me put you on the spot again. <laughs> I thought that was the last one. I've got to add an extra one in. Five five aside team from players you've coached. Oh, coached now. Blimey, okay. Um, Gareth, obviously Gareth Bales, 100% got to be in there. Aaron Ramsey. Uh, um, Mascherano. Mascher would get in there. Um, I think Joe Allen. Joe, Joe Allen, fantastic. So Joe Allen and Masher in midfield. Um, Sneedy. Need a goalie now, don't we? Who's um, have to put probably Wayne Wayne Hennessy who's incredible with Wales. Um, with us, yeah. So I think I think probably be Wayne. And then who do you back? The team that you played with or the team you've coached? Oh, blimey! Well, the team that team that I back would definitely win it at the bar afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, too tough to call Too tough to call that one But Kit, it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for joining me No, my pleasure, I enjoyed it, thanks Cam. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song They'll be filled with song Dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will 